This is the Bridge Episodic Audiobook Podcast. This is Jared Morris, and we're here with episode number six. The Bridge is a science fiction, thriller, speculative science fiction book written by myself and uh, my friend Brian. Brian does some of the voices as well, the audiobook read by the authors. And we're going to get right into it. This section starts out in Crow Agency, Montana. Sarah Adams stood waiting by the hospital reception for Chief Archer. She could sit on the benches and chairs of the waiting room, but she preferred to stand. She didn't want to sit where sick people were sitting. All those months of social distancing made her a bit of a germaphobe. Well, no, that wasn't right. Uh, Peoplephobe. At least when she was working, she could still wear a mask and gloves. If she still wore them out in public, people would think she crazy. She considered it being prepared. She was listening to the sounds of the hospital night crew bustling about, doing their rounds, having side conversations. Absentmindedly, she was looking at the community board that had different notices and tattered posters taped and tacked to it. She looked over at the leftover posters from the pandemic. Hashtag stop the spread, spread kindness instead. Read one from the University of Buffalo boasting a colorfully decorated Easter basket. It gave tips on social distancing. Protect the community and yourself. Do not gather in groups. Stay out of crowded places and avoid mass gatherings. Another urged you to be prepared, be informed, be smart, be safe, and be ready to fight. It listed a website for information on the virus. The poster was courtesy of the United Nations. To Sarah, it seemed strange, almost like the posters were from some distant past, but somehow like they were a warning to the present. If we let our guard down, she thought, the next plague is just lurking around the corner. There are also photographs of the hospital senior staff and a few flyers put up by locals. The typical guitar lessons ad. First lessons free, ask for Craig Roggy. And a language club ad, they had their space, as did the Red Hats and the Crow Agency Police Department. Shared the phone ring in the reception area and began to turn around when another poster caught her eye. It read, Advisory. Advisory. During a brief window of time, April 5th to 28th, not lasting more than 72 consecutive hours, cellular and radio transmission may be interrupted while existing equipment is replaced. On November 5th, Bighorn County officials, alongside the Federal Communications Commission, granted approval for construction of a new section of FM-AM radio tower to KIMG Radio, Grants Radio Group. The construction will allow for leased tower space. It will be used for local communications. PS Interactive, Pryosin Laboratories, filed for the joint application. There it is again, that symbol, that jagged little pill. I knew I saw that symbol before, Sarah thought. There are two women working at the reception desk behind a plastic shield, deliberate in their movements. They appear to be trying to conserve as much energy as possible by making every movement as slow and small as they could. Sarah called out to the nearest woman. Excuse me, Mom. With an almost imperceptible flip of the eyes, a woman turned around, her back now to Sarah. Damn it, I know you can see me. Sarah hated it when people existed only to impede others. Her temper began to flare. She hated the stereotype of the fiery redhead, the quick-to-anger Irish girl, but she embodied it. She took a deep breath. It's not like I'm busking out here. I had a question. 
she thought. She tore the public notice from the wall and began to shove it into the pocket of her red leather jacket. Miss, excuse me, miss, you can't take that, nurse number two said. Her ID badge revealed her name was Christine. Oh, so you did notice me, Sarah thought. Just for the hell of it, taking a move from nurse number one, her ID badge read Carla, Sarah turned her back. Excuse me, miss, can I help you with something? It was Carla. Sarah turned back, an eager smile on her face. Ah, yes, thank you so much. I was wondering. She removed the piece of paper from her aviator jacket and slapped it onto the counter. Uno, she thought. I've seen this symbol here before. She pointed to the jagged little pill icon, or so she called it. Carla gave an almost imperceptible roll of the eyes. Symbol? Oh, horse feathers. Can I help you with a medical matter? Sarah glanced at her feet, closed her eyes briefly. By the time she reopened them, Carla had left the booth. Christine apologized to Sarah with her eyes and approached the window. Can I see that? She asked. Sarah took the paper and slipped it underneath the plexiglass divider. I'm Christine, by the way. Sarah measured her response. Nice to meet you, Christine. I'm Sarah. I'm actually in town on medical matters. I'm working with the Indian Health Service, administering and monitoring vaccines. That's when it hit her, where she'd seen the logo. It suddenly made sense why she saw the logo on Steve Saunders' report. But why would a medical distributor be leasing space on a radio tower in Indian country? Just then, she spied Chief Archer walking determinedly from the hallway that boasted no admittance past this point. Miss Adams, Sarah, I can trust you can find your way back to your car. She nodded. I have to tend to another police matter. I thank you so much for your input. If you ever need anything in these parts, don't be shy. He walked into the night as Sarah stood alone in the hospital reception area. Okay, she said to no one. Flashback. Crow Agency, Montana. Steve Saunders sat in the back of Rosie's Camry. He felt great. A damned headache was finally gone. It was as if he was unstoppable. He had the confidence of spirits, but none of the rotten side effects. The truth was, Steve Saunders was not always a good man. He thought of himself as a real piece of shit. He had slick back hair, lived for New Year's Eve. He spent a lot of time in the last year at the casino. He could have been called a professional gambler, had he been any damn good at it. He rarely broke even, although in the past few months, his luck had begun to turn around. It was like he knew which machines to play. He'd later tell people that he had the touch. He wasn't evil, but he had a difficult time transitioning into adulthood. He existed in that limbo somewhere between college and adult life. Lately, he'd been feeling like he hadn't had much of a future. Legalization of pot didn't help his motivation. He used to be able to make some money dealing to the reservation. He didn't gamble to get rich. He did it for the same reason he did anything, to distract himself. 
It was the same for the time that he spent in the gym sparring. Sometimes it just felt good to get hit. Sometimes it felt even better to choke someone out. Survive if I let you. He rarely had any money in his account. Any money he did make doing odd jobs would go to feed those insatiable one-armed bandits. When he first heard the advertisements on the radio for a drug trial, his first thought was, yeah, right. But the advertisement mentioned a stipend for participation. He had to go to the library at Big Horde College to fill out a questionnaire on one of the computer workstations there. There was a line that day. Steve didn't know if that was abnormal, as his time in the library was limited to getting blowies in the periodical section as payments for his good weed. They called the portion of the library the Screwy Decimal System. The questionnaire took far too long, and to Steve, the question seemed random. After about eight minutes, he decided to answer randomly as well. Have you ever been to Africa? Since 1975. Sure, good times. No. Had you had sexual contact with anyone who's ever had HIV, AIDS, or has ever had a positive test for HIV, AIDS? LOL. I don't know. Unsure. Had sexual contact with a prostitute or anyone else who's ever taken money or drugs for payment for sex? Uh, probably. Yes. Do you have a history of concussions? Nah. No. But he did. Had sexual contact with a prostitute or anyone else who's taken money or drugs or other payment for sex? Oops. Click the back arrow. Have you ever been hit in the head or had an accident involving your head or neck within the last 24 months? Nope. No. He thought answering yes might preclude his involvement in the trial, so he lied. Have you had sexual contact with another male? Fuck no, man. Come on. Ew. Unsure. Have you ever received money, drugs, or other payments for sex? I've received sex and money as payment for drugs. So no. Have you been in juvenile detention, lockup, jail, or prison for 72 hours or more consecutively? No. No. Did you spend time that adds up to three months or more in the United Kingdom, countries of England, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, Gibraltar, or the Falkland Islands? LOL, the Isle of Man. Uh, but no. After a few weeks, Steve had nearly forgotten about the whole medical thing when he received a call from Claire Calloway from the Indian Health Service. Claire was at the learning tree of Sarah Adams' At the IHS. Sarah had asked her intern to take care of the phone surveys. And she was happy to help. Steve was caught off guard by the phone call. It was much of the same content as the computer questionnaire. He couldn't remember half of the answers he had given, so he just decided to play it straight. After the survey, Claire told Steve that if he was deemed eligible, he'd be contacted again and given directions on how to participate further. About two weeks later, he received a postcard in the mail telling him to be at the high school on April 17th at 3 p.m. Expect to wait 10 to 15 minutes. Do not come early. Light refreshments would be available. Payments would be issued the following Wednesday via direct deposit. If direct deposit wasn't available, the stipend would be issued on a prepaid Visa debit card. 
Steve was beginning to feel like this was more effort than it was worth. After Sarah Adams administered his initial shot, she jokingly told him to avoid shots to the head for 60 days and report any anomalies to the number 406-600. Redacted. He said he would. However, he went sparring just three days later at Boo Boo Archer's Dojo Boo Boo. During what was supposed to be a safe session, Steve got distracted after receiving a strong potato to the nose. His opponent saw the change in Steve's demeanor and called for time. But Steve wasn't listening. He was gearing up to take down the other fighter. Without pondering the decision, the other fighter quickly delivered a roundhouse kick to the side of Saunders' head, dropping him. It happened so quickly that it took seconds for everyone to process what exactly just happened. When he woke, Saunders declined medical treatment. He was secretly concerned that he couldn't remember what had happened. It's cool, bro. Just, just walk it off. Ain't no thing. Present day, Crow Agency, Montana. Archer heard the call on his radio requesting backup. There was an out-of-state driver who'd been stopped for suspicious activities. He was sitting in his car at a traffic light two blocks from Mercy Medical. The light had gone through two red-green cycles, and he had not moved. When the officer approached, while doing a visual search, he found the driver acting erratically and observed what appeared to be fresh blood on the interior. Erratically, Archer thought. Not a damn another one. Officer Diego responded to the scene. Together, Diego and Santiago took the suspect into custody without issue. The suspect surrendered and was being taken to the adult detention center at the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where he'd receive a video arraignment on the charge of distracted driving. An investigation into the blood found in the vehicle was ongoing. Archer was greeted at Mercy Medical by Officer Santiago. Since they were both in the area, they agreed to meet so that Santiago could brief Archer on the situation. When she arrived at the hospital, the staff didn't think she was going to make it. Hell, she didn't even look alive, Santiago said. Has there been an identification made? Archer asked. No, she's still out and has no identification on her. All she had on her was a black, ten sizes too big jacket and a pair of boys' sweatpants. Curious and curiouser. What do we know about the cat that dropped her off? Archer asked. Young black man distraught, beat feet before he could be questioned, Santiago said. Is that our inattentive driver? Sounds like it, chief. Ah, Jesus Christ, Archer said. That's the gilly girl. Mercy sakes alive. He was standing above her bed in the emergency room. She was being treated intravenously for dehydration and to reduce her fever. She had scrapes and bruises all over her arms, chest, and back. She had a gash in her forehead and a large infected wound on her right inner thigh, for which she was being given antibiotics. Nicole Gilly was a 19-year-old girl who lived outside of Hardin, Montana, but spent most of her time on the reservation. She worked at the casino as a dealer before it shut down. When she dealt or danced, she went by the name Shay. She thought it was sexier and a bit trashy. Both she liked to exploit for tips. She enjoyed spending time on the res because of the loose opinions on cannabis. She was far from beautiful, but she had a quality about her. To some, that quality said trouble. To others, it said can't touch. Unfuckable, she'd say. 
She existed in that world where half of her friends thought she was loose and the other half thought that she was not interested in sex. Neither were true. We're not out of the woods yet. She's still severely hydrated, but it's these wounds that we're most concerned about. We don't know how bad the infection is, the head emergency room nurse Jill Carver told him. Sepsis? Archer asked. She lifted her shoulders as if to say, I hope not. Okay. Is there anything else? Archer asked. Nurse Carver very gently pushed aside some of the girl's hair from her neck. Look at these marks around her throat. These suggest that she's been choked, but not recently. These bruises look like the kind you'd see when hands were used rather than a ligature. They're also more likely to cause other damage. You'll notice the bruises around the site. There's also a concern about a spinal injury due to how she's been unable to hold her head up. Look at her left eye. It's discolored. Other injuries are consistent with someone who's been living outdoors. She's starving, dehydrated, filthy. The two large wounds, the gash on her leg was recently opened. The head wound is older. She also has at least one broken rib. A stranger didn't do this. Strangulation is intimate. You're always face-to-face and takes a lot of time and a lot of rage, Archer said. Is that all? Jesus, poor girl. Who did this to you? In my opinion, Boo, someone choked her for sure. But much of the other injuries were caused by nature. She was also coughing up blood, but luckily that looks to be a chest infection rather than injury. She's not in as bad shape as you'd think by her looks. Archer was relieved. If she wakes up and can talk, call me, he said. He'd been really worried about having to make that call to her parents since they found that abandoned vehicle. It looked even more likely after the Saunders suicide. At least, now she she had a fighting chance. Now that she'd be ID'd, her parents can come and offer her support. After he radioed dispatch to Asked for the telephone number of Mr. and Mrs. Gilly. He picked up his phone to make the call. No signal, no service, he said aloud. Damn it. I swear to God, these things will be the death of us. Bozeman, Montana. Hey, were you the last to leave last night? I assume so, and if so, you turned everything off, right? Yeah, like always, why? Heather said that when she got in this morning, everything was on. Lights, towers, monitors, etc., There was even an update that was accepted at 3.13 a.m. Nothing big, but how would that happen? It was probably Neely or Bost. They come and go at all hours. No, it wasn't them, I asked. I don't know, who cares? The motion sensors are something probably fucked up. Ask security to pull the video. And be nice, they can be assholes. Good idea. When are you getting here? I'll be late. Headache. Irish flu? Middle finger emoji. Clear Lake, California. Case study. Vic and Marjorie Thompson. April 19, 2006. No one knows exactly what thoughts were running through Vic Thompson's head while he was performing his early daily routine, but some could be surmised by his actions that morning. His alarm rang at the normal time. He didn't notice that he had been asleep in a pool of blood. He didn't notice his unconscious wife lying next to him. Like he did every morning, he tried to be quiet while he prepared for his day. He pulled a sweater over his head, leaving streaks of blood down the inside. 
He went to the restroom to wash up and have a quick shave. He didn't notice the hallway streaked with crimson, with the bloody footprints tarnishing the virgin white of the carpet. Thompson went into the kitchen and did what he did every morning. He unloaded the Bosch 500 series under the sink dishwasher and activated the coffee maker. His next few steps could be extrapolated from the forensic evidence left at the scene. Apparently, he walked over to the Fisher and Paykel stainless steel double-door refrigerator. He packed his lunch for the day in his Thermos brand insulated cooler bag. He was simply getting ready for his day. Next, he went to retrieve the newspaper from his front stoop. That's where police and paramedics found his body. Police told the Hindustan Times that he had accidentally locked the door behind him. He had enough wherewithal to remember the spare key under the Welcome to our happy home, welcome mat. When he reached down to retrieve the key, he collapsed. Investigators don't know the real motivation of the assault and murder. Early theories focus on Keith's finances. But there was no evidence of burglary, and nothing was out of place in the house. In fact, the only thing out of the ordinary was a three-foot bloody axe that was found on the Thompson's bedroom floor. Investigators say that their son Keith went into the family garage, removed the axe, slunk silently upstairs and hit his sleeping father 15 times in the head. He hit his mother a paltry three times, leaving her bloody, disfigured, partially blind, and with part of her brain exposed. Most of the back of Mr. Thompson's skull was missing. How was it that he was able to at least approximate his morning routine? According to the autopsy, Vic's brain was severely damaged in the attack. However, the part of his brain that is responsible for higher functions, like language and reasoning, the neocortex, took most of the damage. His brain's paleocortex, one of the evolutionarily oldest portions of the brain, was undamaged. The parts of the brain that are responsible for instinct and second nature habits were able to still function and only ceased operation when, leaning down to get the spare key, Vic's head drained of blood. This remarkable case exposes just how much there is still left to learn about the human brain and consciousness. Doctors said that Vic regained consciousness after the attack and used the proverbial muscle memory to perform his morning routine. This type of behavior is seen in the less complex brains of some animals. There was a well-documented case of a chicken that was able to survive for 18 months after having its head removed by a farmer's axe in a botched slaughter. Miracle Mike, or Mike the Headless Chicken, survived for a year and a half in Fruta, Colorado, though his owner had to feed him with an eyedropper. His brain stem was uninjured and, thus, was able to maintain basic motor function. He died after choking on a kernel of corn, attempting to feed himself. Of course, there are life forms on Earth that survive without any distinct brains. The sea star, sea cucumber, sea lily, sea urchin, sea anemone, sea squirt, sea sponge, coral, and Portuguese man-o-war all function without one. And, of course, those clowns in Congress. Bozeman, Montana. Dr. Luke Lowe sat in a darkened room with his 15-inch MacBook Pro illuminating his face. He had several windows open on his computer. The left-hand side of the screen showed several three-dimensional biological diagrams of human cells and a spreadsheet of names, several of which were colored in red. 
On the right-hand side was a video chat window open connected to the laptop of Dr. Wendy Star Cooper. In Cooper's window, Lowe could hear the beeping of medical equipment and see the clinical coldness of the hospital laboratory. She had dark-looking circles around her eyes and a gaunt, hungry face. She was dressed in a hospital gown but was holding herself. She looked cold. What you call a problem, Dr. Cooper... I call a breakthrough, you dumb bitch. Lowe said it through his clenched teeth. Dr. Star Cooper's face held a countenance of fear. She wasn't used to men talking to her like that. Listen, Luke, I don't care what our history is. You have no right to speak to me like that. Lowe knew he was out of line, but he was having a difficult time keeping his emotions in check lately. And we do have a problem, she continued. I've got this, this thing behind me, and people at the hospital, oh, they're starting to gossip. And you know that it's getting out to the entire community. You know the old saying, telephone, telegram, tell a nurse. Lowe is not amused. All right, let's all calm down now, he said. He looked around the room as if it wasn't just Star Cooper he was addressing. Get the body to Billings, and I'll meet you there. Remember, this was always the plan. You're going to be famous. Infamous, he thought. Get the body on transport to St. Vincent's. See if you can get a driver you can trust. Not five miles from the hospital is my Montana lab. It's operating under the name PS Laboratories. I'll text you the address. Get the body there, and I'll take it off your hands. Okay, she said. I'll figure it out. You always do, Wendy. And she nodded. She said nothing while she disconnected the call, then put her elbows on the metal tray table and put her head in her hands. She was starting to get a headache. She was just going to put her head down for a minute. The lights were so bright. The cart behind her continued beeping. It held rhythm with her heartbeat. She closed her eyes. Sunday. Mercy Medical, Hardin, Montana. Dr. Cooper stood over the body of the late Mr. Saunders, panting and trying to catch her breath. With little success, her eyes were tightly closed. They were tired and they hurt. She didn't know if it was a lack of sleep, fear, dehydration, or a combination of all three. She'd only had coffee that day, no water. Her head pounded. The sickly glow of fluorescent lights flickered above her, seeming like they could go out any minute. They cast a cloudy aura throughout the already morose room. Don't have a panic attack, she told herself. It's dead. He's dead. Dead, dead. For real this time. She had injected 4,000 micrograms of fentanyl about two minutes ago, and the body stopped moving within a few seconds. It was twice the amount to assure death. Frankly, 100 micrograms is enough to cause death. Wendy Star Cooper once again tried to catch her breath and stood still, not moving, just breathing. If she moved, it might wake up. Fuck you, Luke, she thought. It's over. I'm done. I am done. She wasn't. She was angry, tired, and on the edge of losing it. This was far more than she signed up for. 
She lied to herself. There was only one way this could end, and she knew it. But the chase, the chase, was all the incentive she really required. Yet, like every sleazy salesperson, Lowe hyped up the positive and didn't mention the negative of his little experiment. He knew which buttons to press to push his former colleague just enough to forget her sworn oath. First, do no harm. This is going to help people, he said. And the fame and fortune we receive won't be horrible either. Luke Lowe was a dangerous combination of brilliant, confident, charming, and mean. Perhaps Dr. Star Cooper was distracted by her anger and fear. Perhaps her heavy breathing masked the sound behind her. Or maybe it was the constant, insectile buzz of the fluorescent lights. But for whatever reason... The doctor had not heard the double steel doors behind her push open. Nor did she hear the sound of human feet dragging and swishing against the floor. The feet, like the rest of the body, were charred and leaving a trail of burnt protein. Rosie Arbor, or rather the new... Burnt to an almost crisp Rosie Arbor 2.0, lunged and flung herself under the shoulders of Dr. Star Cooper. Star Cooper looked to her right and saw something hanging over her right shoulder. It looked like a human arm, but at the same time, it looked like the, the, the pellicle of dry-aged beef or one that had been maybe left in the air too long. Some parts of the skin were pale, resembling the fat, yet some were red and brown and dry, so dry. Star Cooper didn't notice the pale pink area seemed to be under the areas where the pellicle layer flaked off. What should at least have been scar tissue instead resembled new skin. Not healed skin. New skin. I haven't eaten yet today. Star Cooper thought to herself. Star Cooper opened her mouth to scream, but she could only manage silence. She was too far gone and too far into shock. She had already been on edge, and this new nightmare on top of all the others sent her over the proverbial cliff and into the crashing waves of terror below. She could only make a low guttural groaning sound as the tears began to flow from her eyes. Then she actually started to laugh. None of this could be real. The thing dragged her down to the floor. Mmm, Rosie dryly hissed as she clawed and pulled at the doctor's clothes, making her way up close to Star Cooper's ear. Dr. Star Cooper laid down on her stomach on the floor. Rosie was lying on top of her, stomach to back. She pawed at the doctor's head and hair with her scorched hands. A few of her fingertips were now nearly just bone. Where's my... It mumbled again. Harding, Montana. Sarah hated being alone on these trips. She wished that she could have brought someone with her, like the old days with Jeff. Even though Jeff could be a, a royal pain in the ass. She thought of her team back in Rapid City. Her intern, Claire, was supposed to make the trip with her, but she had an illness in the family at the last minute. At least that's what her texts said. She was seriously behind schedule. She sat at the little table in her overly frilly B&B room. No matter how many Airbnbs she stayed at, they all had one thing in common, doilies. 
These people love their doilies. They were everywhere. That and cat hair. So much cat hair. She still had a few in-person interviews to conduct. But it was too late on a Sunday evening for that. She had to hope to catch them tomorrow. She knew that not everyone would be home on a Monday afternoon, but she could only do so much by herself. Besides, people didn't generally like it when you showed up at their place of employment for a medical questionnaire. She decided to spend the evening cold calling the people she'd yet to make contact with on her patient list. Sarah opened her Chromebook and pulled out a spreadsheet of names. She was able to make phone contact with six of the nine patients that no-showed the Pretty Eagle event. Sarah made a note that two would be unavailable, having to be at work on Monday. They may be available after dinner, but she wasn't going to kill herself tracking them down. They knew that any form of noncompliance could result in them being dropped from the trial. That means they wouldn't get paid. Two others were ill and checked themselves into the Crow Cheyenne Hospital for respiratory ailments. Upon hospital approval, she'd visit them tomorrow afternoon. The other three, whom she couldn't contact by phone, would receive a surprise visit. She wasn't exactly thrilled about the prospect of doing solo house calls, especially since she was already sufficiently on edge by the death of Steve Saunders. That cast an ominous gray over the whole trip and creeped her out to think about it. She noticed that the hair in her arms was standing up. Probably just an electrical storm in the area, she thought. Or maybe somebody's walking on my grave. Mercy Medical, Hardin, Montana. Dr. Wendy Star Cooper felt the flecks of paper on her tongue and the roof of her mouth. It tasted bitter. It unblocked a long, dormant sensory response that flashed one word, danger. The burnt flesh mingled on Star Cooper's tongue, but her mind didn't care at this point. The fluorescent lights flickered again, remaining off for a few seconds this time. It eventually came back on. Star Cooper felt a momentary surge of adrenaline. She pressed her palms into the floor and was about to push herself upward. That's when the husk of Steve Saunders rolled off the metal slab and fell onto the two women. The weight on Star Cooper doubled, more than doubled, and, and she was crushed back to the floor. Her nose pancaked onto the tile and broke easily. Blood geysered out onto her upper lip and across her teeth. And what was Steve Saunders played a game of scramble with Star Cooper and Rosie. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. Dr. Wendy Star Cooper felt a barely perceptible pinprick in her abdomen, followed by a sudden deep pain of broken sharps embedding into her skin. Saunders rolled off of them and was lying on his side, facing Star Cooper. She said in desperation to any fates that might be listening, but the girl never took the pill. Rosie's fingers continued exploring and clawing at the doctor's face. They went into her ears, nose, mouth, even eyes. Saunders slid over and actually tried to almost spoon the good doctor. He didn't seem to want to hurt her, but rather cuddle with her, which somehow seemed worse. Dr. Star Cooper, after spending several minutes in an unthinkable hell, finally found her voice. She screamed, I don't have your fucking baby, you cunt. The fluorescent lights flicked out. This time, they did not turn back on. Flashback. Mercy Medical, 
Hardin, Montana. If you Google Native American doctors, all of the top search results are about medicine men. There was a joke in medical school that Dr. Star Cooper used to tell incoming students. What do you call a Native American doctor? A doctor. Areas with a high indigenous population suffered the same kind of brain drain that other low-income communities did. When kids grew up to become doctors, they didn't dream of treating the neighborhood. They left for other areas and followed the money, the ma, as they would call it. There were few that became doctors, real-life medicine men and women, to help the indigenous community. One was behind the heavily guarded steel doors at Mercy Medical. Dr. Wendy Starr Cooper and Dr. Jonas Friedman were standing in the hospital morgue. It was bright and clinical, not at all like on TV. There wasn't normally monitoring equipment in this part of the hospital. There didn't need to be. Friedman made sure to wheel the patient monitoring equipment in himself. He wouldn't permit any orderly or nurse past a security guard. Inside the first door was a hallway that led to another steel door. This door is equipped with a card entry security device. There is also an unarmed guard stationed outside of the double doors. Mercy was a small hospital that only housed five cold chambers. They lined the left side of the room and kept the room at a low temperature. It wasn't unusual for one or two of the cold chambers to be out of working order. And there were also an area to store amputated limbs like diabetics' legs for further study. The tile floor looked like it was taken from a high school locker room. It had to be easy to clean. Usually, there'd be a morgue attendant on duty to assist, but today, only Dr. Star Cooper and Friedman were present. Friedman was the chief of medicine at Mercy Medical. He was a short-tempered man and not prone to fancy. He had little patience for incompetence, and he was generally unpleasant to be around. He was also one hell of a doctor. Star Cooper was a medical scientist. She was generally involved in coordinating research between area hospitals, and she had an encyclopedic knowledge of the human body. She was also born in Crow Agency. Normally, I'd say this was human error, Friedman thought out loud, or maybe equipment failure, but this equipment shouldn't be humming at all, Wendy. Dr. Wendy Star Cooper didn't know if he was using her first name out of familiarity or as a way to diminish her education. There had been no working security cameras operating in the morgue, so they had to work backwards to figure out what happened. Friedman made damn sure that the security cameras were in operation now. When was legal death? They had already been over this, but he liked to talk things out as many times as he needed, especially when things didn't make sense. Carlos Sanchez, the medical examiner, didn't arrive on scene for several hours after the accident, Wendy said. The rancher, she flipped the page, uh, Gus Tomlin, said it had to be after 1 a.m. that he heard a shot. Sanchez said it was probably closer to 4 a.m. based on the temperature of the body when he arrived on scene. So either way, he was most likely dead by 4, legally dead by 11. 11.37 to be exact. Right, Freeman said. That was yesterday. 24, 23 hours ago, yes? Yeah, Wendy said. That is to say yes. That is correct. And autopsies on suicides are usually performed within the first 24 hours after death, Friedman offered. If able, yeah, Wendy said. But before Sanchez could cut him, that happened. 
She motioned with her hand. On a steel table situated near the wall of the dead lay the body of Steve Saunders. 30 hours prior, he sat against a tree on Gus Tomlin's property. He placed a handgun under his chin and fired. When he fired, the bullet traveled through his temporal and parietal lobes. It killed him instantly. Sort of. His heart had stopped, Wendy said. He had no brain function. Hell, he has no brain, but that doesn't change the fact that his body is responding to stimuli. He's not going to be dancing a jig or taking any pop quizzes anytime soon, but, well, there, there it is. There it is. Tapping its foot. If I didn't know any better, I'd say the body is trying to heal itself from death. The wound seems to be almost cauterized. It has clotted, and it's stopping the body from bleeding out. The body was attached to all types of monitoring equipment. Every time the heart monitor registered a beat, both doctors held their breath. The heart was beating very weakly, but it was beating. His hands were slowly opening and closing, and his lungs... Ever the scientist, Wendy had performed the tracheostomy, placing a plastic tube through his neck and into his lungs. It was shallow and barely detectable, but his lungs were contracting and expanding almost in slow-mo. I'd have to go and do a thing like that, Friedman whimpered. So, he said, how do we kill it? Watching what had been Steve Saunders struggling to breathe and being cooped up with Dr. Friedman, Wendy started to feel claustrophobic. I need some air, she announced. She exited the morgue and walked down the hall, out of earshot of Friedman, out of earshot of security. She dialed her phone. Dr. Luke, I think we have a problem. That's it for today on the podcast, The Bridge, episodic audiobook podcast. This is Jared Morris for uh, Brian Clymer. Next time, we're going to find out a little bit more about what's been going on in these hospitals and with these experiments. The mysterious Amen is going to play a bigger role and... We're going to find out what Danny's been up to as well. Sarah's going to make her rounds. It's a lot of stuff coming up. Until next time, this is Jared. If you want to get in touch with me, it's Jared Morris Radio on Facebook, at Jared Morris on Twitter, jaredmorris.com is the website. If you have a message for Brian, I can convey it for him uh, to him if you'd like. Otherwise, as always, I will see you when I see you. Good night, God bless, and good day, sir. I said good day, sir. Good day, sir. You, good day, sir.